Hi, Pitchfork Economics listeners. I'm Ashley, one of the producers here at the show. We're taking a break this summer, which means no new episodes. But in the meantime, we're re-releasing some of our favorite past episodes, like this one from May 2021 with Mariana Matsukato. Listen as she argues that our economy would be much better off if more government agencies adopted the mission-oriented approach that DARPA has. And don't forget to follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and please leave us a five-star rating or review. Mariana Mazzucato is the author of a new book called The Mission Economy, A Moonshot Guide to Changing Capitalism. So when you say moonshot, you don't just mean something big. You mean a different theory and style of governance. Absolutely. And I literally mean the everyday stuff that government does. The book is really about rethinking the intra-organizational governance of the state in order for it to be really ambitious. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So Goldie, today we get to talk to one of my favorite people, Mariana Mazzucato, who's an economics professor at University College London and is the author of a new book, another book called The Mission Economy, A Moonshot Guide to Changing Capitalism. She is just brilliant. Uh, she lives in London and uh, she'll be with us from there today. It is so great to read a book like hers uh, and then get to talk to the author. One of the uh, earlier books I read was her book, The Entrepreneurial State, really influential in, in our thinking of, of the actual role of government in the economy. And this new book, she breaks it down into some of the core principles, uh, where we've gone wrong in economic yeah. theory and where we need to go. And it's, and it's very interesting, Nick, because in this book, I hear a lot of narrative that echoes themes which uh, our listeners will be familiar with on the podcast. She talks about how bad theory leads to bad policy. That's a theme we've been hitting since the very start. Uh, She talks about economics as being about who gets what and why. And she talks about focusing on outcomes as opposed to just output, which is another one of the themes we hit repeatedly. Well, let's talk to Mariana. So I'm Mariana Matsukato. I'm an academic at University College London, where I have founded an Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, which is all about rethinking the state, literally from scratch, in order to rethink capitalism. And I've just written a book called Mission Economy. Uh, what is it called, actually? Shit, I don't remember the subtitle. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Mission Economy, A Moonshot Guide to Changing Capitalism. Okay. Great. <laughs> so introduce the book. Uh, tell, okay. us, uh, tell us why you wrote it. So for for some years now, I've been working with policymakers globally, trying to convince them that we need to redesign policy away from fixing markets towards creating and shaping markets. And the way I framed that was that things like industrial strategy, say, shouldn't just be a list of sectors that you know a government supports or provides subsidies and guarantees, but it should be a list of problems big problems that we have, whether those problems be the future of mobility, whether they be about solving key issues around the digital divide, 
whether they be problems around you know, global problems like getting the plastic out of the ocean and then designing the strategy so you get as many different sectors as possible to collaborate and to innovate together to solve that problem and especially redesigning public policy. So again, industrial strategy, innovation policy, procurement policy, right? Government as purchaser, grants and loans to galvanize as much bottom-up innovation and investment to actually solve problems. So a problem-focused policy, an outcomes-oriented budget, and what I've been calling mission-oriented policy. And on the back of that, there's been some changes which I helped implement, for example, in the European Commission, they actually now have a missions instrument, which is part of the Horizon um, Innovation Program, which has about 90 billion euros attached to it. And I just felt like I needed to tell that story of why mission-oriented policy was important in a way that the lay reader could understand, especially in an era, you know, modern day capitalism, where I think there's so much distrust of government, of business, there's a lot of polarization in society kind of galvanizing a bit of inspiration of what we can do as humanity when we set our goals properly and have a real kind of purpose-oriented public-private partnership, like, by the way, the one that got us to a moon, to the moon, not a moon, the moon, uh, 51 <laughs> years ago. You'll remember that that, uh, that project, the Apollo program, was not just NASA-driven. It wasn't just about the state. It was very much about a new design of public-private partnership. There was lots of investment by companies like Honeywell, Motorola, General Electric, but NASA really cared not only to get to the moon and back in one generation, but especially to design that partnership in such a way that was actually purpose driven. And that's the story I tell in the book, hoping that it gets governments to be more, uh, uh, not just proactive, but really focused on getting the kind of dynamic capabilities within the public sector I think we've lost but also bringing this notion of purpose that we often hear about in the corporate world, bringing it out of the silo of corporate governance gimmicks, <laughs> but you know, to the center of how business and government work together. So, so when you say moonshot, you don't just mean something big, like most of like, oh, that's, that's huge and difficult. You mean a different, a different theory and style of governance. Absolutely. And I literally mean the everyday stuff that government does everything, right? right? You know, from public education, public health, public transport, you can have a moonshot mission oriented approach to it, or you can just kind of be a bit, you know, bureaucratic and boring and inertial about it. So let me just give you an example in Sweden on the back, actually, of some work that my institute's been doing um, with Vanova, which is the Swedish innovation agency, kind of like a DARPA in Sweden, but not exactly they have a really interesting you know, mission uh, for the government at a national level, which is a fossil free welfare state. And if you then land that in the public education system and even more specifically on things like school meals, what does it look like to have a really specific target like healthy, uh, a tasty, because if it's not tasty, no one will eat it, uh, sustainable school meal production. What does it mean for you know, the production, distribution, consumption patterns, but also what does it mean to bring school children and students to the process of co-designing that mission, but also being part of the process that monitors whether it's going well or not. Because we shouldn't forget that some of the most um, you know, brilliant innovation agencies like DARPA that have been mission and moonshot oriented, they were just as good as turning the tap uh, off <laughs> as they have been at turning it on. So what does it mean to be both long-termist, but also knowing when to pivot, to be agile and flexible? And unfortunately, if you think about it, the word bureaucratic, why is that a negative word? You know, we could have creative 
dynamic, you know, funky, sexy bureaucracies. Yeah, <laughs> so the book sure. is really about rethinking the intra-organizational governance of the state in order for it to be really ambitious on both the kind of big things out there in space, but especially the everyday. And if you think about the 17 sustainable development goals that we have since 2015, you know, every country has signed up to them. There is 169 targets beneath them. They could all become, you know, different types of moonshots. Right. So, Mariana, um, I, I think that uh, the way in which you laid out sort of the five myths about government, you know, government and markets was a nice way of explaining to people where we went wrong, you know, and we call that that mythology neoliberalism, but people can call it all sorts of different things. But would you mind punching through those five myths quickly? Because I think they really they uh, make it really obvious where, you know, where the problems lie. Sure. So the reason I go through the five myths, by the way, is because I really believe that uh, bad practice is often driven by bad theory and vice yeah. versa. And so I also end the book with kind of a better way to think about our economy, which hopefully will also you know, lead to better practices. So the five myths have to do with how we think about value, how we think about markets, how we think about efficiency, how we think about capabilities and capacity within the state, and how we think about directionality. And so, you know, without without going on it too much, you know, in terms of value, unfortunately, we often, you know, think that business creates value. And at best, what government can do is facilitate and enable that, but it's not really a value creator itself. And hence, it's not surprising then that you don't actually have a curriculum, for example, for civil servants that even frames the role of the civil servant as a wealth creator, as a value creator. It's really, again, at best, fixing different types of problems along the way. Values created you know, in the production function, if we look at economic theory, by capital and labor. And the role of the state is you know, about redistributing uh, value in terms of taxation or you know, funding some very basic things in the background. But we don't think about value as collectively created by different types of organizations, public, private, third sector, trade unions. Do trade unions create value? Of course they do. We wouldn't have the weekend without trade unions. We wouldn't have the eight hour workday. We'd still have children working in factories. Markets, you know, markets often are confused with business in terms of just how we use the word. Instead, markets are outcomes of how we organize, you know, uh, government, how we organize the private sector, how we organize different types of value creating institutions, and especially their interrelationships. So seeing markets as outcomes is really important, I think, in terms of uh, debunking some of the myths out there. And again, if we think of markets as being kind of separate to government and government just fixing um, market failures, it's no surprise that we end up often with government policies that are kind of too little too late. Uh, third, efficiency, you know, this idea that at best what government can do is to fix markets is also related to the idea that, you know, governments need to be also run like businesses and kind of strive for that kind of efficiency gain. And we haven't really thought about the different forms of also dynamic, not just static efficiency that uh, we need to be thinking about. I mean, again, think about the, the moon landing, you know, most of the interesting things happened along the way as dynamic spillovers in that process, all sorts of innovations that we, you know, uh, benefit from today, from camera phones, athletic shoes, home insulation, uh, foil blankets, scratch resistant lenses that could go on and on, even the whole software industry, you know, came from that process. And so what does it look like to also be able to 
evaluate, even ex post, the kind of what I call public value that's created when you're mission oriented and all the serendipity and uncertainty that happens along the way, but actually designing that process to be a moonshot and mission oriented needs to be accompanied by an alternative way to think about things like cost benefit analysis and net present value. We would have never gone to the moon with a cost benefit analysis uh, right. capabilities. You know, the fact that we have so much outsourcing of government capacity and the government brain to consulting companies today, PwC, Deloitte, KPMG, and so on. That's again, you know, related to that first myth there about value and who creates it. But the fact that then we don't see the role of the public sector as creating value means we haven't invested in the dynamic capabilities and capacity of the public sector, which makes it all too easy then to, you know, rubbish the public sector by saying it doesn't have those capabilities, but it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. And lastly, direction. You know, just think of the terminology when we talk about policy, it's all about, you know, leveling the playing field. Well, none of the great things that, you know, we have in our iPhones today, like the internet, GPS, touchscreen, Siri, the voice activated system happened from just, you know, government leveling the, flank, the playing field. There was very active investments that occurred and really fostering the IT revolution or also fostering what today is hopefully going to be the clean tech and the green revolution that require decisions to be made about directionality, you know, that we actually want or don't want a green transition, that directionality needs to be explicitly discussed and asked what does that then mean for the design of both supply side and demand side kind of policies. But as long as we talk about the role of policy as leveling the playing field, as opposed to tilting the playing field in a direction and then formulating portfolios that really help us kind of get there, right? Yeah. So tilting the playing field, not in terms of picking one sector or one technology, one kind of firm, but definitely making strategic decisions on the direction of growth that we want, because don't forget growth has not just a rate, but a direction. And if we want more inclusive and sustainable growth, that means something very, very specific in terms of the kind of policy that's going to get us there. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, when you talk about direction, it's funny. I know in the book you you talk about economics both from an evolutionary perspective and complex adaptive systems, and on on the evolutionary side, you know they talk about uh, the fitness landscape. It's basically just the government changing the fitness landscape, uh, so that you're 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 evolving the solutions that that you want. It's a metaphor that I think fits very cleanly with your book. Well, that's a really good point because selection mechanisms, there's nothing deterministic about them. You right. know, we can reward certain types of behaviors. That's why I've been more recently also with the COVID-19 recovery scheme saying that we need conditionalities attached to the recovery schemes, right? So if you want to, uh, you know, get a bailout or a subsidy or guarantee or a massive recovery, you know, a piece of a big recovery fund like we currently have in the US and Europe and other uh, areas, then that should be conditional on actually changing behaviors. And it's quite striking, by the way, that some countries have done this while others have completely not done it. You know, so in France, there were strong conditions attached to the funds given to both Renault, the car manufacturer and Air France, the airline that they had to commit to reducing their carbon emissions. And that, you know, that was not a choice. If you want some government money, you'll have to do that. Similarly, in Denmark and Austria, con uh, companies that had been using uh, tax havens, the idea was, well, you'll, you're you going to have to change. Um, but even pre-COVID, I've often um, given this as an example of you know, tilting the playing field. When the steel sector, which globally is asking for government help, 
came to the German government saying, help, help, we're in trouble. The KFW, their public bank, made it a condition that steel commit to reducing their material content through the whole you know, value chain in order to get a public loan. And they did it through repurpose, reuse, recycle technology, not because they went to Davos and talked about stakeholder value or purpose, but because they had to in order to receive a public subsidy. And most businesses receive some form of public support. So putting those kinds of conditionalities at the center means again, tilting the playing field in the direction of the kind of growth we want. And that formulates the selection mechanism. So let's talk about an American example uh, of your principles in action. You mentioned DARPA throughout the book. Uh, explain the role of DARPA, how it operates and how it meets the, the, the guidelines of your, your mission approach. And and, and some of the areas where we've benefited from it. I mean, first of all, DARPA is an innovation agency inside the US Department of Defense. It was founded in the mid 1950s, more or less the same time as NASA, the National Aeronautics Space Agency. And what's been so interesting for me at least about DARPA is that first of all, it has always been you know purpose focused. So for example, DARPA basically invented and funded, you know, the internet, what we today call the internet, but not because they talked about the internet. No one in DARPA said, oh, we need the internet. They had a problem to solve, which was getting the satellites to communicate. <laughs> and, Dar and the internet was a solution to that. Um, and, you know, it's always been focused on problems, including, for example, driverless cars, um, not because they said, oh, wouldn't driverless cars be cool? It was because it would solve a problem. You wouldn't have soldiers dying inside tanks, you know, in, in the battlefield. And driverless cars are a solution to that. So again, having an innovation agency inside the public sector that is focused on problems, and these that I just mentioned are wartime problems, the big question, you know, in the first instance is what would it look like to have something like DARPA or an ARPA-E, which we do have just with a tiny budget in the US compared to DARPA. DARPA is about 3 billion. ARPA-E I think now has about 300 million. Uh, focus on big problems around the green transition or an ARPA-H, something I've been arguing for now for quite a few years that Biden has actually now, you know, through the new innovation strategy put on the table. So ARPAs for social, societal problems. And you know, here we have to remember that societal problems are much harder <laughs> than purely technological ones. They often require, as we were just talking about, regulatory change, behavioral change, political change. But an ARPA-H or an ARPA-E or ARPA-D, you know, focus on the digital divide, you know, questions, which are a huge issue. The main feature would be that you're focused on a problem. You bring in people so DARPA brings in people on secondment, you know, often from the scientific community for a limited number of years. Um, I think it's about five years. And they are explicitly told to be, you know, risk taking, to welcome the uncertainty. And, you know, these are civil servants. They enter the civil service when they become part of DARPA. And unlike most civil servants, that as soon as they make a mistake or fail, they're on the front page of in the UK here, it's the Daily Mail. Every country has its, you know, equivalent newspaper where we, you know, as soon as a, a government makes a mistake, we call it out as, you know, uh, government failure, the picking winners problem, and so on. Actually, in DARPA, that process is welcomed. I once spoke to Cheryl Martin, who was the second director of ARPA-E, and I asked her, how do you, you know, actually organize your organization in order to take the kind of risks that, you know, are just so hard to take when you're in government. She said, well, we actually evaluate our staff based on how much risk they were willing to take, but also how much economy-wide impact 
their successes have. So that idea of having real impact so that your successes matter, but the admission that along the way you're allowed to fail and that, you know, that process is about trial and error and error and error is, is fundamental. And one of the things I, I mentioned in the book, which I think is really important, especially if we look at the, what I call the consultification of government today, is the head of procurement in NASA. His name was Ernest Brackett at the time of Apollo. He was very clear that if NASA itself wasn't investing within its own brain, its own what I call dynamic capabilities within the public sector, they would actually get captured by brochuremanship. So, you know, by sexy PowerPoints today, at the time these were brochures. And I think something that DARPA has done very well, but so did NASA during Apollo, was by being ambitious and by investing within their own capabilities, their own R&D, their own knowledge creating mechanisms, they also knew how to partner better with the private sector. They drew up better terms of reference. You know, NASA famously, at least, well, I didn't even know this, I found out about it as I was doing research in the book, for the book, they had this no excess profits clause. In other words, as they were partnering with all these different companies like you know Honeywell and Motorola, the idea is we're doing this together. This isn't gonna be just a gambling casino. <laughs> it's not about earning excess profits. You get your fair share of profits, but they also then worried about how do you design the procurement, which is the relationship in this case between the public and private sector so that it, so that it actually, you know, that, that partnership is designed into the contract so the same, you know, the, the, the same people, you know, heading up the procurement policy immediately changed the way that contracts were designed from cost plus contracts, which they thought could be easily gamed to fixed price contracts with constant incentives for innovation. And that kind of care to the detail of the contracts, you know, I think is something that we can learn about today in terms of rethinking the social contract between the public and private sector in order to rethink capitalism to be more purpose oriented, whether it's delivering, you know, a vaccine that is universally accessible or solving big issues again around digital divide or big problems we have like, you know, our oceans that are just absolutely filled with plastic. Speaking of vaccines, you mentioned in the book that, that DARPA helped fund uh, Moderna's uh, uh, COVID vaccine. It, it was... I think it was October of 2013, they gave a $25 million grant to Moderna to fund their mRNA vaccine research. Without that early stage funding, we might not all be getting vaccinated today. Well, absolutely. And the total amount, by the way, is about um, $12 billion worth have gone into the different uh, vaccines. So I think it's about $1.7 billion for the AstraZeneca one, $1.5 billion, the Johnson & Johnson uh, one, 2.5 billion Pfizer and so on. But the really interesting thing is where that investment came. So what I argued in one of my previous books, The Entrepreneurial State, the reason I called it the entrepreneurial state was that you know entrepreneurship is about risk-taking and the role of the state as taking that early stage high-risk investment, often when also the capital intensity is higher, is something that goes completely you know, missing when we just talk about the state as fixing markets or at best, you know, investing in some sort of background conditions. Often the kinds of investments that the state has provided, both in terms of health innovation with the vaccine, but also again with the kind of internet revolution, the, the energy revolution has been the early stage high risk capital intensive phase. And that's when the risk of failure is so much greater. And so another thing I argue the book is, you know, if, if that's the case, if it's the, especially the high risk investments that we're asking, you know, 
the state to make? What does it look like to actually formulate that as a portfolio where the state is not only you know, uh, uh, funding the risk, but also sharing the rewards? And I think there's different ways to do that. One is to make sure we're actually governing innovation you know, with a public interest in mind. And that means taking care that the patents aren't abused, intellectual property rights. They are often abused. They're, they're too wide. They're too strong. They're too upstream way too long and constantly being renewed through some you know, bogus uh, uh, new kind of laws that come up. But you know, this is why the World Health Organization is also calling for um, a patent pool to really nurture what Dr. Tedros, who I'm actually working with quite closely in a new council we've set up. Uh, Dr. Tedros is arguing for a patent pool in order to foster as much collective intelligence. So we have as much knowledge sharing as possible, not just with the vaccine, but also the therapies. We can also, you know, have more public reward by those kind of conditionalities that I was talking about before. With public investment, there should be conditions. The profits, which, you know, are nurtured by that, are reinvested back into the system instead of extracted out through practices like share buybacks. We can also have conditions on the direction, broadly defined, not micromanaging, but the direction of investment. So in more, you know, uh, energy saving and, and, and reduction of carbon emissions. But also, there's no reason that in some cases, for example, when companies themselves are receiving uh, investments by the government, it's not clear why, you know, we're just end up bailing out the ones that don't succeed and not getting a share of the successes. Yeah, I mean, look at Tesla. Tesla received more or less the same amount that Solyndra got. So Solyndra got a 500 million guaranteed loan by the DOE. Uh, Tesla got, I think it was about 470 million. And Obama strangely said to, I mean, it wasn't him, but anyway, the DOE, uh, the arrangement was that if Tesla didn't pay back the loan, the government would get 3 million shares in the company. Of course, they did pay back the loan. They were successful. And had they had that arrangement, if they did pay back the loan, the price per share went from nine to 90. That difference multiplied by 3 million would have more than paid back the Solyndra failure and then the next round of investment. Instead, all we heard about was a oh, Solyndra failed, government's bad, government shouldn't make bets, You know, just go back to fixing markets. And there was no narrative about the success and there was no structure in the portfolio to make sure that we were socializing both risks and rewards. Yeah, I just cannot understand why all of this bailout money wasn't attached to preferred shares on behalf of the public that, you know, like the 50 billion that went out to the airlines. It's just nuts. Yeah. Like there's no reason why you couldn't have taken preferred shares from all those companies and stuck them in an account for people's social security or whatever it is, right? Like the public could have been shareholders and all those things. And we know how to I do it. I mean, the, it's not like it's rocket science. That's right. Science. It's not we complicated. Yeah. Where no. there's a will, there's a way. And where there's no will. That's right. <laughs> exactly. In fact, there are giant industries devoted to just these sorts of arrangements. So, um, you know, I guess one of the really interesting things that strikes me about your work is that you, you're battling this really pervasive idea that states and markets are, are basically in zero-sum relationship, that they're in competition with one another effectively. And it is certainly true that uh, they compete for power, uh, but they certainly don't compete for value creation. They are inextricably intertwined, it seems to me. It depends. I mean, it depends on how we're creating value. That's the whole point, right? So the first is to admit 
as you just did, that they can co-create value. And that requires, again, yeah. debunking that myth that value is only right. created in business. And by the way, I was in an opening session of the World Economic Forum this year with the proponents of stakeholder value, and I, you know, no names. Um, and the first sentence was, val- you know, business creates wealth. And then we have to make sure that's also distributed to all the stakeholders. I was like, no way, you know, stakeholder value, if we're going to talk yeah. about that, has to begin with the notion that value is actually created by different types of stakeholders. So that's the first thing. But, you know, unless we then move that forwards and think about what does that actually mean for how we understand value in the economy? What does it mean for, again, the design of the tools on the ground, but literally the kind of organizational culture we have in government, then, you know, it's, it's just kind of philosophy and, you know, abstract theory. And so, I mean, that's, again, why I wrote the book, which is, you know, there's this great idea out there that we have, you know, these big problems to solve together between business and the state. We have the SDG, so we've actually signed up to that idea <laughs> that we're going to, you know, go after these big problems, but we don't have the design of the tools, the kind of also ideology, because ideology is just a thing, right? These are ideas, you know, the, the kind of mindset yeah. of what it actually means to, you know, to foster change. We haven't invested enough in the nitty gritty of what does it mean to redo government, redo business, and especially redo their interrelationship in such a way that really is purpose-driven. So the answer to your question is yes, it definitely can be a win-win, but if we stick with the current ideology, we're governing this process in a very problematic way, and it's not a win-win. I mean, you know, mega bucks are being made today, whether it's in the space sector, whether it's in the health industry, whether it's in the kind of you know digital sector, in such a way that is definitely not purpose-oriented. I mean, just think of space. You know, I talk about the moon landing, but space today is full of rubbish, of garbage. You know, the astronauts are like, we can't see anything. <laughs> you yeah. know, so an unregulated <laughs> space where we're just celebrating any initiative of anyone putting something up there. You know, it's it's not win-win. It's it's a system. It's an ecosystem, and we have to foster a mutualistic, symbiotic one. So, so we we often hear that uh, government spending and borrowing crowds out private investment, but but you argue with examples like DARPA and NASA that it actually crowds in investment. It's the government spending that creates more investment. Well, when it's structured properly, I mean, that's why, you know, I also just recently wrote a report on the BBC, the British public broadcaster. And it's it's really interesting how because it's driven by really bold goals and hasn't accepted, as PBS actually has in the US, that, you know, at best it can fix a gap of what the private sector is not doing. So in the UK, the BBC is also doing soap operas and talk shows, you know, not just kind of documentaries and high quality news, by being really ambitious, independent of the format, and trying to produce what they call public value, they've ended up really being kind of thought leaders and path breakers in different areas, which then form new markets, which create new areas and new opportunities for businesses to follow. So the irony is that when governments do kind of buy into the narrative, you know, and the ideology that they're not only, you know, at best market fixers, but a bit, you know, too big and just kind of, you know, worried about crowding out. That's when you actually end up crowding out because you're not doing your job. So you're just literally filling up space <laughs> as opposed to, by space, I mean area, um, as opposed to doing your thing of really, you know, transforming markets. But, you know, transforming markets in and of itself is not an objective. The question is, what are you doing? So the, the National Institutes of Health, I think are really interesting because on the one hand, they invest a lot of money you know, in the US in health innovation, over 40 billion a year. 
And I've often argued that then they don't go the whole way. As we just said, they don't govern intellectual property rights necessarily properly. The prices of drugs don't reflect that. But on top of that, coming to this discussion, the question is why are public organizations like that investing so much just in like drug research and not enough in really kind of redefining what we even mean by health innovation to include things like lifestyle changes, right? So one of the roles I think of a public institution is to redefine the market itself, really push that market you know, beyond its current frontiers. And in that sense, it's shaping and creating, not just fixing markets. And you know, that is in fact what the BBC has done. And that's why it's so successful and also has a very high market share. And precisely because it's successful and has a high market share, it then gets told it's crowding out, but it's actually not crowding out. It's just very successful yeah. in what it does. And then the idea is, oh, but if you're so successful in that area, that should be for business. I wonder if, like us, you have been surprised on the upside uh, by the ambition and execution of the Biden administration thus far? And if so, how aligned does their program, not just what they have done, but what they seem to be intending to do, how aligned is that with your thinking? So first of all, I think, you know, it's so refreshing <laughs> that we've moved away from a mercantilistic policy, which is what we basically had with Trump, you know, yeah. forget other things we could say um, yeah. about what Trump was doing. But the idea that it was all about, you know, trade and exchange and walls towards actually a policy that is very much based on investment and, you know, kind of the renewal of industrial strategy, including, by the way, things that were already in the pipeline before Biden came in, which was the Endless Frontier Act, you know pushed mainly through Chuck Schumer, but it's also a bipartisan policy, which is really to, again, revitalize science and innovation funding. So all that is great. Then I think on top of that, what we need to ask is what does it mean to lay on top of that, this build back better umbrella, right? So that again, in terms of the direction of the funding, you know, this isn't just about throwing a lot of money at science and hoping for the best, yeah. but precisely to have right. that kind of DARPA kind of mission oriented. Um, but, you know, also in terms of the public-private partnership on this, I think that I've heard less, but I'm sure it's, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll hear about it more, but coming back to that notion of conditionality, it's not just about COVID-19 recovery funds. It really is about, you know, if we are going to have 40 billion a year in NIH funding or different types of, you know, DARPA funding, SBIR kind of funding, NSF funding, you know, NSF funded Google's algorithm. What does it mean to make sure that the results of that are, you know, good yeah. for people and planet? That's and right. that doesn't happen on its own. It's not good enough to say, oh, we have the SDGs. Oh, we have these great goals. It does mean to really rethink the, uh, the details of how we govern innovation and production. And I think that really is the next phase. So moving from mercantilism to having an innovation and industrial strategy, great. Governing that in the public interest requires a whole set of things that I think will you know, have to be kind of the next step in the plan if, if we are going to build back better. Well, we'll see. It's definitely moving in the right direction, it looks it like. It definitely is. And I think that, um, you know, the fact that we did have a financial crisis over 10 years ago and lots of money went into the system, but most of it ended up back in the financial sector. Yeah. I think globally that is also recognized. And that's why in Europe, for example, this next generation EU funding, which is the, well, it's not the equivalent in terms of size, but it's about 1 trillion in Euro funding for the European recovery. Unlike in the financial crisis this time, there's conditions attached, not just public-private, but public-public. So the European funding to the member states is conditional on countries actually having a strategy around climate and digitalization. 
And separately, there's also a pot for health. And you know, we haven't seen that. You'll remember the conditions attached after the financial crisis were on austerity. You had Portugal, Italy, right. and Spain, the famous pigs <laughs> that Goldman Sachs called them. I'm Italian, so I'm allowed to say that. The, the condition attached to the funding was they had to cut their deficits. Luckily, the talk now is not that. We'll have to see, though, because this is the biggest danger I see for the immediate future, is that lots of countries have put in a lot of money, you know, whether it's on furlough schemes, whether it's on, you know, the, the immediate needs on health. And then we're going to hear in a couple of years, oh, dear, you know, the, the deficit has ballooned, the debt has ballooned, now we need to claw back. And we need to really yeah. resist that because if, if one thing has been made really clear with the COVID-19 pandemic is our health systems and the welfare state was also really, really ill-prepared. And we need to make sure the next decade strengthens that. And that's not going to happen on a shoestring. Nick, Nick, final question. Absolutely. So Mariana, we always ask our guests this one question. Uh, why do you do this work? Because um, I truly believe that agency, so strategic decisions matter. You know, there's nothing inevitable. There's nothing inevitable about how, you know, we are stuck now with the problems we have around big tech or, you know, the climate crisis. They are outcomes of decisions we've made. So getting better decisions made driven by a different type of understanding of our, um, you know, how the system works is what drives me to do it but also i just think it's 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 the only way i mean we can't we yeah. can't keep screwing this up if we want a planet to live on <laughs> well mariana this was absolutely fantastic thank you so much for uh being with us uh and giving us some of your time thank you so much when i was in college back in the early 80s it wasn't called the internet it was called ARPANET. Yes, correct. <laughs> I, I so because it was literally created by DARPA. Yeah, they right. created the internet. And, you know, bringing it back to the current moment with uh, COVID, it turns out, as we've learned, uh, that DARPA also made a lot of the initial and long term investments in many of the technologies that led to these vaccines being developed at a at an absolutely record pace. Never anything like this before in history have right. we developed a vaccine so quickly. Yeah. So one of my one of the my favorite parts of our interview with Mariana was when she was relating the anecdote about Davos and being on this panel about stakeholder capitalism <laughs> and one of her and one of her co, you know the co-panelists insisting quite unconsciously probably that that it's business that creates wealth and government that redistributes it. And, you know, and, and it's just, I think, and, you know, her jumping on that person quite rightly, because it's just not true, you know, uh, business and, you know, uh, markets and states are in relation to one another and desperately need one another. And you can't have really one without the other. And, you know, I think it's very, very true that, government can create tremendous value and in fact does create tremendous value and prosperity and wealth in human societies right there there is no market without a government exactly so, so we certainly uh, you know in a democracy we certainly have a right to shape the market to meet our needs as opposed to the other way around yeah absolutely uh anyway just a really super interesting conversation and i do think that she's very much on the right track about governments taking a bigger role, not just in investment, 
in society, but in defining the kinds of outcomes that we want markets uh, to focus on. Uh, well, what a fascinating conversation. Mariana's uh, new book is Mission Economy, A Moonshot Guide to Changing Capitalism. There's a link to it in the show notes. Highly recommend you buy it and read it. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.